It's with real joy that I welcome our son Paul and his wife Rebecca to uh, speak to us today. They are missionaries in Africa with the Mennonite Central Committee. Uh, they've been there 12 years. Uh, they've been six years in the tiny countries of Burunda and Rwanda, and then they were four years in Tanzania, and uh, now they've been for the past two years in Ethiopia. They will tell you more about the work that they're doing with the Mennonite Central Committee and uh, what its activities and programs are. And then Paul will be giving us a message about reconciliation because the Mennonites are noted for their role in peacemaking around the world. And that is such an important and challenging task uh, in the world where there is so much conflict. So Paul and Rebecca, I welcome you. morning to all of you. It's really a delight to be here. Um, I will be starting us off this morning with sharing about our work and then as Henry has said Paul will follow up by opening the word to see how our work relates to what all of us are going through in this world in following Jesus. Um, my name is Rebecca as Henry said and so I'd like to start by giving you an overview of our work um, with a special focus on the peace building programs that we support. Um, first of all, I think Mennonite Central Committee and Mennonites might be a bit new to some of you. So can you go to the next slide? Yes, great. So there's the mission statement for Mennonite Central Committee um, it's a worldwide ministry of Anabaptist churches. So before I go any further, I want to just clarify, this is Anabaptist, not anti-Baptist. We're, <laughs> we're not against you. We have a lot in common, actually. And um, in fact, uh, Anabaptists were a movement in Western Europe um, starting from about 1525, so a long time ago, right after Martin Luther nailed up his uh, 99 theses, um, the scriptures were available to believers for the first time because of the printing press, and people were reading the Bible for themselves, and all over Europe there were Christians who read the scriptures and they decided that a state church baptism didn't necessarily mean that you were a Christian. And so they were calling for believer's baptism for those who were adult confessing believers. And I think you can also understand that movement. Um, two other really important things for Mennonites were um, to take the teachings of Jesus as being central and being really important, including things that were very challenging, like Jesus saying, love your enemies. 
And so that's sort of the roots of where the Anabaptist movement came from a long time ago. Um, Mennonite Central Committee is more than 100 years old now. Uh, it started in 1920 when Mennonites from North America sent food aid to Mennonites in Ukraine, actually, um, right after the communist revolution and when there was a famine there. Um, so at this point, MCC continues to be a worldwide ministry of Anabaptist churches, sharing God's love and compassion for all in the name of Christ um, by responding to basic human needs. So we do a lot of practical ministry um, and working for peace and justice. So it's a, an example of the gospel in word and in deed. Um, could you skip to the fourth slide with the picture of our family? Yeah, and then we'll go back to the third one. I think as Henry already mentioned, we've worked for MCC um, for, I guess it's what, 11 years now as a family? Um, and here's a picture of our family. Actually, we were on vacation in Djibouti in this picture. Um, our younger son, David, is here with us. The older one will join us later in the day, Oren. Um, they're both going to school in Ethiopia at a mission school um, with volunteer mission teachers and um, really good international atmosphere there. Um, we have lived now in uh, three different countries as a family in Africa working there. Um, but we moved as a family to Ethiopia last year in July. So if you can go back to the Ethiopia slide. Um, Ethiopia is really a unique country. It's like no place we've ever lived. Um, you can see maybe just slightly on the map where it's located in the Horn of Africa. It's the second most populous country. It's really, really a big country. Um, they're very proud of the fact that they were never colonized and any conversation with an Ethiopian will pretty much start there. They're very proud of the fact they're an ancient culture. Um, they, they have been Christian long before anyone in Western Europe was Christian um, and Orthodox or Coptic Christianity is one of the main religions there. Um, they also uh, do have quite a large percentage of the population that is Muslim at this point. Um, and then there are a lot of evangelical Christians. I, I think a growing number of evangelicals growing up in the country. Um, and if you, if you look in the Bible and talk to Ethiopians, you will find that there are Ethiopia figures in the Bible, you know, from the visit of the Queen of Sheba to King Solomon, um, right down to the Apostle Philip ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot who was baptized. We don't know what happened to that eunuch, but it seems like he went home and maybe planted a church. It's an interesting area of research for someone. Um, and they even claim that they have the Ark of the Covenant there in a monastery in Ethiopia, guarded by a priest. So. Very interesting, interesting, ancient culture that, we're, that we've moved into. Um, 
So can you go to the slide with our staff? So we work with um, an excellent group of Ethiopians in our office. We have now um, five Ethiopians plus Paul and myself. Um, some are in administration. We have a food security program manager and the general program manager for peace and education work. Um, the next slide shows our whole big staff group, including our guards and our cook and their families. We took everyone out for a fun day at a park near Addis Ababa where we live um, just to enjoy one another, get to know spouses and kids and share a Christmas outing. Um, so let me move on just a little bit to talk about our work. And you can see the MCC project locations. One, one important thing about our ministry with MCC is that we believe local Ethiopian partners will be much more able to do the work well than we ourselves as foreigners. And so our approach is to find excellent local non-governmental organizations who are doing good work in communities and we support them with mostly with financial grants also with technical expertise um, advice networking them with other people doing similar work to help improve their outcomes so um, we have uh, 11 different partner organizations we work with now in the past year while we've been there one of the biggest areas of work, sadly, has been emergency relief projects. Um, and that connects, I don't know if any of you have followed the news and have seen Ethiopia in the news having kind of a civil war. Um, you might have heard the, the Tigray region mentioned. So um, there was a conflict that started in the north in Tigray and then from July until November it spread south into Amhara and Afar regions and there I think have been five million displaced people so you can imagine that when you flee from your home with nothing but your kids and you go somewhere like you're living in a school or something you need a lot of help food shelter clothing so our partners have been doing that kind of work um, in the northern regions of Ethiopia. We also have been supporting longer term food security work. So that um, really means uh, climate smart agriculture, helping people to get a good yield for their crops in a country that's been farmed for way too long and the land is very tired. Um, so to the next slide, there are also peace health and education projects in a lot of different places in the country. Um, and then finally, water, sanitation, and health projects, including well drilling in places that had no running water at all. Um, I'm going to skip on to talk more about our peace projects. Um, and one example of a, a truly amazing project is through the Mennonite Church in Ethiopia, Meserete Christos Church. They have a prison ministry um, in which they really work hard to change the culture of revenge killing. And 
this is, you know, this is biblical in a sense. I think if you remember, if you know your Old Testament, you know, there is mention in, when there's a murder, there should be an avenger of blood and someone who brings punishment to the killer. And Ethiopians and Amhara still live by that kind of code of conduct where if someone in your family is killed, you are duty bound to go and take revenge on the killer. But you can imagine, you know, it's just a cycle of violence that continues and continues. So the Mennonite church is trying to break that cycle um, by bringing victim and offender families together in their communities for reconciliation ceremonies. Um, the Mennonite church works actually in prisons with prisoners doing all kinds of different work, practical work, you know, bringing them clothing, helping them with job skills training for when they're released. They have chaplains that counsel um, new believers. They have actual like psychological counselors that can help them with their emotional problems, but then they have this reconciliation mission um, for those prisoners that are getting ready to be released, they can't really go back home until they know they're not going to just get killed as soon as they set foot out of prison. Um, so if you can go to the next slide, there's a picture here of the uh, reconciliation committee in one community. Um, the counselors work with the prisoner, usually himself, in prison, but they also go to the families of the victim in the community and also the family of the killer and counsel them, talk with them and hopefully bring them to a point where they can agree to be reconciled. And when everyone is ready to take that step, they gather for a ceremony and in the next slide you will see this group of men gathered and there is a, a sheep a sheep that has been slaughtered. It's the scapegoat, you know? It's the, the animal that takes the guilt of the killing. And the, the killer's family, the offender's family, brings this to the victim's family and they accept this animal to be killed. They lay hands on it and they say, this is sealing the deal. We're, now we're reconciled. And then in the next slide, you'll see that they then share a meal together both families together, recognizing that um, the guilt has been wiped clean, they can live together again. Usually there's actually financial restitution that's also paid to the victim's family. Um, so this is a really amazing example of restorative justice that people are doing in Ethiopia. And then finally, I just want to say a little bit more about broader peace work in the context of a place in a lot of conflict. Um, yeah, as I've mentioned, in November 2020, a conflict broke out in the northern region of Tigray. Um, and there was fierce fighting. There were atrocities committed by both sides, I would say. There's been a blockade against uh, Tigray. Um, because they were aggressing a democratically elected government. Um, but there's suffering on all sides. And one of the sad things about this is that this is Christians killing Christians. 
these are Orthodox Christians in Tigray killing Orthodox in Amhara and vice versa. And these are, you know, evangelical Christians who are taking revenge against Orthodox Christians. And so the question is, where is the church in all this? Why isn't the church saying anything? Um, and so from July until November, we as MCC were working with our partner, the Mennonite Church in Ethiopia, to find a convener who could bring together Orthodox, Catholic, and Protestant church leaders to ask this question. How is the church responding? Um, you can go to the next slide. Um, and we sponsored a forum led by the Bible Society of Ethiopia, where all of these top leaders got together um, at the end of November and were asking themselves, we've been silent, this is a problem. As Christians, we need to speak out for peace and for unity, so how are we gonna do that? And Bible Society was able to bring a top-level leader from the Orthodox Church to speak. Um, he actually came from New York, where he's the leader of the Orthodox community there and was well respected by all the people gathering, which is hard to do in a room full of Christians, to find someone everyone will respect. Um, <laughs> sorry to say, but you know it's true. <laughs> um, and so following on that, each community of Christians had to put together specific action plans. What, what are they gonna do? How are they gonna respond to, to try and restore peace and unity to their country? And, um, you can see in the next photo, there's a picture of the gathering, and then um, the following one, there's a picture of Abune Petros when he was speaking to this gathering. And so, you know, coming out of these meetings with MCC, we've been helping the Mennonite Church and others to train church leaders in peace building and in trauma awareness, because basically pastors are the only counseling care a lot of people are gonna get for all the trauma they've suffered um, in these past 18 months of conflict. So I think I will leave it there in terms of talking about our program and Paul will now share um, from the scriptures as well. Thank you and good morning. I uh, so just want to say it's, it's great to be here. Um, as Rebecca said, um, I, we'd like to follow up. We were invited to, to give a message and I'm hoping that we can bring a message from the word that can tie to our work and also give us some, our own sense of, of inspiration and call in relation to this. I know not everybody is working in Ethiopia, but I think that what we've learned there applies to our daily lives here. So let me start by just sharing um, a passage of scripture with you that I will uh, be using for, um, for a sermon, a sermon reflection, and then um, I will tie it a little bit to the work that we've been doing, how it's, how it's been evident in some of the uh, testimonies we've heard. So, I put it up here, um, if you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from John chapter 21, verses 1 through 19. So I'm going to go ahead and read that, and uh, you can follow along on the 
screen or in your, in your Bible. So I'll be reading from the NIV translation. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and, you'll, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple, whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garments around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. This is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you that we can be gathered here today. Um, just the true, the gift of your Sabbath is already 
so much for us, Lord. We thank you that this day is set apart, and we thank you that we can worship you, that we can be together in community and fellowship, even if we have not known each other here on this earth yet. We just thank you that we can be gathered in your name. Bless uh, this word and to our minds and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So I just want to say it's great to be here again at Valley Baptist. And I realize that um, a lot of you are new faces, honestly. Um, it's strange to be one of the old people here. But I used to come here in the, in the early 80s, honestly, when my parents joined. And um, usually it was when I was coming home from college. And we would come at Christmas and sing the Hallelujah Chorus as part of the Christmas Eve service. Um, Rebecca and I were married by... Rick Cash, who was a former pastor. I don't know how many of you were here when Rick was here. I see a few people waving, raising their hands. Um, so I feel like I have some history here. Um, we've spoken a, a number of times, so it is feel like it's coming home, even though, as I say, I see a lot of new faces. Um, of course, it's been several years since we've been in this, in this particular sanctuary because of COVID. So when past home leaves, we hadn't come here and been able to uh, greet you live, but it's a blessing to be do that to do that today and I'm glad I can share up this uh, sermon reflection with you as part of the presentation this morning um, I especially appreciate that appreciate that because I know that Baptists really really understand um, the biblical roots of of peace and reconciliation. I feel like, you know, because you're familiar with the word, um, that I think that you will appreciate the ways that the word, the way that we are working connects to um, what we hear in the Bible and even in this passage today. I'd heard you've been working through the book of John, so if I jump the gun a little bit, uh, you might get another sermon on the end of John, but I'm happy to be able to share this with you. So I just want to say today, I just want to, I want to focus on Peter a little bit, um, who's a central figure in this passage. Um, and you know from the Bible that, you know, Peter is actually one of the most prominent characters in the, in the, in the Gospels, besides Jesus, of course. But, you know, we hear about Peter um, at least as much. He's an early disciple. He's with Jesus throughout his ministry. He's witness to the most significant events in Jesus' ministry. There are stories in the gospel where Peter is the object lesson, right? I mean, how many times do we hear uh, Peter being discipled? Often through his experience of failure, of rebuke and correction. This is something that we're familiar with when we hear uh, some of the stories of Peter. Peter seems quick to want to impress, but regularly overestimates himself. I know none of us have that problem, but apparently it was Peter's problem. Um, given all he saw of Jesus' earthly ministry, I just want to think about, like, what do you think was the most formative lesson that he learned? Like, what do you think, Peter, if you asked him, when you're looking back, what was the thing that really really stuck with you, Peter. What made the strongest impression? And you remember, he, he witnessed miracles like the 
resurrection of, La of Lazarus, the blind seeing, the lame walking, miraculous netfuls of fish, the calming of a storm, the feeding of 5,000, or maybe it was the mystical transfiguration. Peter even tried walking on water. What do you think formed him the most? Maybe you're seeing where I'm going to go with this. Um, I'm going to make the case that this particular experience, this reconciliation on the beach, may have been the most formative moment of his experience with Jesus. Let's just look a little bit about what happened before this. We know that on the night of his arrest, of Jesus' arrest, Jesus shared the Last Supper with his disciples. We even do many of the things that he did when we celebrate the Eucharist, the breaking of the bread, the sharing of the cup. He washed his disciples' feet. But Jesus also predicted his death. And most disturbingly, I think, he said to all his disciples, you'll abandon me when he, was, when he would be arrested and condemned. And you remember that Peter was really incensed. What did he say? He said, no, Lord. <laughs> the others, they'll abandon you, but I will not abandon you. And Jesus answered him, and I think... I don't think I've heard anything more stinging and yet more compassionately delivered. This rebuke that he said to Peter. I don't know how he said it to Peter, but he said, Peter, before the night is even over, before the rooster even crows, you personally will deny me three times. Ouch! That was a deep cut. And you know, I think it was especially painful, and this is not, I can't prove this, but because Peter, in his overestimation of his character, probably really believed himself to be courageous enough to stand beside his master. I don't think that Peter was just saying this. I think Peter believed that about himself. I can't prove that in the Bible, but I really feel like Peter thought that's who he was. And that's important because when the inevitable failure and denial come, the wound is that much deeper for failing both Jesus and his own sense of identity, of who he was. It's like the knife is stuck in and it's twisted. I don't know if any of you have had that experience. A moral failure where you not only let someone else down, but also damaged your own self-image. You know, I remember once being in a small gathering. This is when I was in college. 
And I was sharing in some gossip about a close friend who was also a roommate. I was living in, like, it was like kind of a shared house. And I told a particularly demeaning story about this person that I'd heard. Then I realized he was in the next room. And he heard it, the whole thing that I said. The pain of hurting him was at least as bad as the pain of realizing that I was just like everyone else in my pettiness. I was the person I detested. I really, I really thought I was better than that. And I have to say, honestly, my pride at the time, as a sophomore in college, prevented me from ever really talking to him about this. Over time, it was forgotten. He seemed to let it go. We remained friends. But I, you know, I really don't think it was ever quite the same after that. And I can tell you since then, I'm very reticent to say things behind people's backs, especially, certainly something demeaning. Um, I was wounded by that experience. And the, and the scar remains to this day. And I think a lot of us who are, by the time you reach adulthood, you've probably done things where you've let others down and you've let yourself down. You've hurt others and you've let yourself down. We regret things we did that went against who we thought we were at our best. Regret those things we did that we were against that were against who we thought we were at our best. Peter, after the resurrection, does go out to the tomb to look for Jesus, and Jesus appears to him and other disciples twice in the, in the Gospel of John before this encounter in Galilee. Now, one thing worthy of note in the account of Jesus' meeting with Peter this account of reconciliation, did you notice where it is in the book of John? It's the last thing. It's how John chooses to end his whole gospel. Sometimes I think, is that anticlimactic compared to the other gospels, which end with the Great Commission and the Ascension? And here is just this story of two people on a beach. But John, you saw how John starts his gospel. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. It's clear that John is very thoughtful about the ordering of events. So I think he's ending this story, ending his gospel with this story for a very good reason. And I think it gives us a, a, a big clue to how we should understand it. Just to go back, the disciples have returned from Galilee after a bad night, have returned to Galilee after a bad night of fishing. They see someone on the shore who tells them to cast their net once more on the other side of the boat. It's an interesting parallel, right, to Luke 5. 
where Peter encounters Jesus for the first time and he tells Peter to haul in a large haul of fish. But the real surprise is when they near the shore and John recognizes the man as Jesus. Now Peter bolts from the boat to meet him. Peter's the first one out. On the shore, the disciples find a fire ready, and after the hauling the fish in, they share breakfast with Jesus. It says they didn't dare ask him his name, but Jesus breaks bread, divides fish, again parallels to the Last Supper or the miracle of the 5,000, and the disciples do know it's the Lord. Then Jesus takes Peter aside, presumably alone, and he performs a a really quite a beautiful reconciliation ceremony with them while they walk along the beach. And the parallel to the three times Jesus denies him is very clear, right? The three denials, the parallel is really unmistakable. Peter denies him three times, and Jesus asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He asks this three times. The first two times, Peter assures him, yes, Lord, I do. But the third time, the emotion is almost too much. Jesus touches the wound each time. Metaphorically, he opens it. He removes the infection. Because I believe that it's an infected wound that Peter has. One that, rather than heal, threatens to become gangrenous, to eventually destroy his body, the infection of his own male moral failure and betrayal of his master. Three times. You know, I can imagine if Rebecca asked me three times, Paul, do you love me? First time, I'd probably answer with, Easy confidence. Of, of course I love you. Because I think that the assurance is for her. The second time I would be more urgent in my assurance, but uneasy about the question. The third time. Okay, now I would stop and self-examine. I would understand both a deep gap as well as an opportunity I have failed in some way of upholding my part of the relationship. I do love you. And I want to do better in showing you that I love you. I believe that of all the signs and wonders, the experience of Peter denying his Lord and the reconciliation on the beach would have been the most formative of his discipleship. They left scars, no less visible than the nails pierced in Jesus' hands. But Jesus does something even more profound. At the time of reconciliation, he doesn't take the attitude of forgive and forget. But rather, if you notice, after each time, he gave Peter, he commissioned Peter, he gave him a job, he gave him a leading role. He said, do you love me? Feed my lambs, feed my sheep, a pastoral role. And I just want to make this comprehensible in ordinary terms. 
This happens a lot in, in our context. If someone stole money from you, or from me, I can imagine, let's say it wasn't a lot of money, I'd be able to forgive and forget it. Honestly, I, I feel like I have enough wealth, I could just say, okay, fine, I understand you probably needed it more than me. This can even be a very typical moral non-Christian response. It's not just Christians that can forgive and forget. We can imagine some moral justification why the person might, um, might have done this. Ideally, I would have nothing to do with that person again in the future. And I can tell you that I would not hire that person to guard my house or to be an accountant in my, in my business. That would not be my attitude about like, oh, you stole from me? Okay, maybe I should give you a better job. Um, but that's what Jesus does with his words, feed my lamb, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep, lead my church. The reconciliation goes far beyond forgiveness. He's recommissioned. How could Jesus be confident that Peter wouldn't let him down again? And yet we see the fruit of this in the book of Acts. Now we know that there was the coming of the Holy Spirit, but there's something really, I feel like the coming of the Holy Spirit just brought out the strength in Peter that he had learned from this. And I say that because when I look at Acts 4, it's particularly interesting that Peter goes before the Sanhedrin. He meets Caiaphas and Annas again. These are the very people that he was cowering from when he denied Jesus. He's almost given another opportunity to say, okay, what are you going to do now? And Peter stands before them. He convicts them. He you know, tells them of the, of the crime, of you know, the sin of, of killing Jesus. He offers them reconciliation. But he doesn't show any fear in confronting them about this. A complete change. Of course, at the end of the passage that we read, Jesus warns Peter about his, his uh, own death on their walk. He'd be taken to a place he didn't want to go. His hands would be stretched out. And indeed, we have some extra bi bi biblical accounts of Peter's martyrdom in Rome during the time of Nero by crucifixion. So we know that Peter almost certainly was martyred at some point in his life. I believe all of us, not just Peter, have scars that shape us, and that one's scars that are responsible for forming our character to be more like Jesus. Peter was empowered by the Holy, by the Holy Spirit, but the experience of denial and restoration would have to be the most important, significant, formative experiences of his life. He, like us, are not simply forgiven and forgotten, but forgiven and transformed. A new creation. I want to end with a with an example of this from our own experience in, in uh, Ethiopia. 
I've had the privilege, I've had the privilege of witnessing transformative reconciliation in our work in Ethiopia. And I think it, it's a good current example of this kind of, of experience. Um, in the past year, as Rebecca told you, um, during the time of the Ethiopia crisis, MCC has been working with partners to bring church leaders together. Um, in the case of the Ethiopian church, it, I mean, in the Ethiopian context, it's the Orthodox Church, the Catholic Church, and the Pentecostal or the Protestant Church, which they use those terms inter interchangeably. Um, and we've been inviting them to make unified statements condemning violence, especially violence between Christians of different ethnic groups in Ethiopia, which is something we've witnessed in the past year. And at one, play, at one particular gathering, we had the opportunity to sponsor a Rwandese pastor. I mean, a, yeah, a Rwandese pastor is named Celestan. And he spoke at a gathering of, of evangelical church leaders in Ethiopia. And Celestan brought a powerful message about the gospel of reconciliation and against ethnic violence among Christians. Or as he put it, now, Celestine's coming from Rwanda. Now, you might remember Rwanda had a genocide in the 90s. Uh, so he's very familiar. He was very familiar with the experience of, um, of um, ethnic division in a Christian country. And he said this. He said, the blood of tribalism in Rwanda ran deeper than the waters of baptism. The blood of tribalism ran deeper than the waters of baptism. Celestin had a warning for his Ethiopian Christian brothers and sisters because he knows that ethnic violence is at its worst. He knows what that looks like. Celestin lived through the genocide, and the essence of his message was this. The situation in Ethiopia right now looks as bad as, or even worse than, the situation leading up to the genocide in Rwanda. He said, I see the signs. This looks at least as bad. The difference is, we had our genocide. You all still have a chance to act and prevent it. He identified himself during his talks as a Hutu. I don't know if you're familiar with the Tutsis and the Hutus were the two ethnic groups in Rwanda. Now the Hutus in the initial genocide were the ones that killed the Tutsis. But later in 1998, Tutsis came to take revenge and they went to his home village and they murdered Celestin's family, including his parents and his children one night while he was out of Rwanda. Celestin talked about wrestling with grief and his strong conviction as a Christian that it somehow, somehow, despite his anger and his grief, that he needed to forgive those who perpetrated this crime against his family. He talked about how abstractly, in his mind, he was able to say, okay, you know, I can, 
I will forgive and forget that. The killers had been imprisoned. They had been caught and imprisoned. And so intellectually he could say, okay, you know, justice has been done. I forgive them. And decided not to think about it again. But then he went to a pastor's conference and he was one of the main speakers and he looked out in the in the audience of pastors and he recognized direct family members of the murderers of his own family. And this is what Celestin said. I confess that at that moment I ceased to be a Christian and became a Hutu. At that moment, I ceased to be a Christian and I became a Hutu. He burned with rage through the several days of the conference, but did feel convicted in his attitude toward the end, and he decided to take the step of actually meeting with them. And the first thing he did when he met them was he repented to them of his anger and hatred toward them. He repented to them of his anger and hatred toward them. Might sound backwards to you. They were overwhelmed and in turn begged him for forgiveness for the crimes committed by their clan. Through this, Celestan and this, and this family moved from a relationship of forgiven and forgotten into a relationship of reconciled family members. And Celestan eventually heard that the children of his family's killers were now living in dire poverty because their fathers were in prison. And Celestan actually went and met with them in Rwanda, and he effectively adopted them providing funds for food and education for them. And now they're grown, and their children are like grandchildren to Celestan. They regularly meet together and have for holidays and keep in touch as a family. This is the picture, I believe, in today's world of the model of reconciliation Jesus shows Peter in restoring him from a coward and a denier into a role as a bold church leader, evangelist, and pastor. We all bear scars of our failings, but through Christ's redeeming love, we're invited to use those very scars as opportunities to bring healing and restoration to our family, community, and the world. I'm just going to close by saying that Pastor Mike reminded me, and I've always appreciated that about the um, ending a sermon with an invitation. I've always really in, just appreciated that so much about, about the Baptist Church. Um, and although I'm not going to do necessarily the same kind of invitation of inviting you up, although if certainly if this is a day that you have discovered that, that um, you are ready to make a confession of faith 
certainly we would, I would invite you to be in touch with any of the elders of this church. But I wanted to invite us today into a kind of renewal. You know, I know Celestin quite well, and he's quite an ordinary guy. But he's got a really incredible testimony. And I think of, wouldn't it be great to have these testimonies coming right here from this congregation, these bold acts of reconciliation? Because Celestin isn't an angel. <laughs> he's, he's an ordinary man that, that, through his own journey, found this opportunity. And I know I can speak for myself and probably for a lot of us, we might be at a place where we're disappointed with ourselves, with our own walk. You've been doing this for a long time. You've been following for a long time, but we, we stumble. And we need to be renewed. We need to be filled up again. And I hope that the testimony of Celestan, to hear about him, about this person that took this step of inviting his enemies to be his family would be an inspiration to you and an opportunity to say, yes, I want to be renewed. That's where I want to be. So I have a prayer here, and I'm going to pray it at the end, and I invite you to pray it in your heart. I'll read it slowly, and it's a prayer for us, and it's a prayer for us as, a, as, a, as Christians as well as me and you individually. So if you'll just bow your head with me and just listen to the prayer and you can pray these words in your heart. Glory to you, O God, our Lord. Your love calls us to be your people. By sharing our many and diverse gifts, we share in your mission. We ask you, Lord, to shape us as individuals and as a community of faith. Nourish us by your word and testimony of your saints, like Celestan, that we may grow into the image of Jesus through the power of your Holy Spirit. He, heal me, Lord, heal me, Lord, that I, in turn, may heal the wounded. Form me to be an instrument of love, justice, and peace wherever I am. Form me to be an instrument of love, justice, and peace wherever I am. For me, Lord, to be your instrument. Use me to proclaim your saving work. Renew me, Lord, that I may renew my neighbor, my community, even my enemies. In the name of Jesus, amen.